In the last book of his Lord of the Rings trilogy, J.R.R. Tolkien describes a touching scene after the final battle and the destruction of the One Ring of Power. Frodo and his faithful companion, Samwise Gamgee, have successfully delivered the, the ring to the fires of Mount Doom, and they've nearly died in the process. Well, after being rescued, Sam wakes up in a beautiful surrounding, and he's amazed that he's alive, and he's amazed to see his friend, the wizard Gandalf. And as he looks around, Sam says, is everything sad going to come untrue? What has happened to the world? Well, this was Tolkien's way of trying to describe what the Bible says about the future that awaits Christians. It's not just that good things are in store for God's people, but God actually has a future plan where all the bad things will disappear. And there are a lot of bad things in this world. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of trial, a lot of difficulty, a lot of sorrow. But one day God will usher in new heavens and new earth in which there is no evil. In which there's nothing that is wrong. Everything will be made right. That day is coming. It's not here yet. But it's on the way. For now, we still live in a world that suffers from the effects of the fall. In this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. In this world, we cannot escape sadness and suffering. The Apostle Paul addresses this reality in the middle of Romans chapter 8. This is the place where we find ourselves today in our ongoing study through this New Testament letter. Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 25. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, you'll see this on page 944 of the book of Romans. Because these verses are tied into verse 18, it's appropriate that we should start our reading this morning in Romans 8, 18, a passage that we've already looked at, but it provides the backdrop for verses 19 through 25. So follow along in your copy of God's Word. As I read, beginning in verse 18 of Romans 8 and all the way down through verse 25, the Apostle Paul, in this portion of his letter, says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved." Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Our present sorrows, present sufferings, point toward the sure hope of a future glory. 
Yes, we suffer and sorrow now. But they are pointing us forward to that which awaits us in glory. In our last study of verse 18, we saw that Paul connects the ideas of present sufferings with future glory. And in that verse, he tells us that for Christians, this life of temporary suffering now gives way to the life of surpassing glory forever. And the point of that verse is that what we experience now in sorrow and suffering cannot begin to compare with what awaits us in the future in terms of glory. When you put them on the scale, the sufferings of today, don't even tilt the scale one bit. Beginning in verse 19, Paul makes the case to support the point that he has made in verse 18. And he does so by combining groaning and glory. If you look at the passage we read and down through verse 27 that we didn't read, you'll see that Paul mentions groaning three different times. He says in verses 19 through 22 that the whole creation is groaning. And then in verses 23 through 25, he talks about the church groaning, God's people, we ourselves groaning. And then in verses 26 and 27, he speaks of the groaning of God's spirit. Today, we're going to look at the first two of those, and then God willing in our next study, come back to consider the spirit's work of groaning, helping us in intercession. So what is the Apostle Paul saying to us here? Well, in verses 19 through 22, he says, the creation groans for the renewal of all things. What does he mean by creation? He mentions it four times in these four verses. And the word that he uses, it could encompass Everything in the created order. Everything that exists that is not God. But I don't think that's what Paul means by it here. Why? Well, because he makes a distinction between creation and Christians in verse 23. When he says not only creation, but we ourselves. And so he's talking about something that didn't exclude or didn't include Christians. When he mentions them in verse 23. And then also, when you think of all the created order, you have to recognize the fact that what he says about creation in this passage does not apply to holy angels. I mean, holy angels have no need to be set free from corruption. And it can't apply to wicked angels, to demons and devils. Why? Because they have no hope of ever being set free from corruption. So what Paul must be talking about is what we might call subhuman creation. Animals, plants, earth, rocks. What we often refer to when we speak of nature. Paul personifies nature in this passage. He does it by speaking of it in anthropomorphic language. That is, he talks about creation. He talks about nature as if it were personal as if it were human or had human personality, human characteristics. Now, he's doing this in line with what other places in Scripture does. We see this throughout Old and New Testaments. For example, in Psalm number 98, verse 8, we read there about rivers clapping their hands and hills singing together. So Paul is incorporating this anthropomorphic language in order to help us think rightly about what's going on in the created world now 
and what awaits it in the future. So what is the present condition of the natural world? Well, this passage makes clear that the created world is not the way that it was originally designed to be. In Genesis 1, where we have the record of God creating the world, we find seven times God saying, as he looks over his creation, this is good. The last time he says, it's very good. In other words, when God created the world and looked over the works of his hands, his judgment was, everything here is right. It's just as it ought to be. But of course, now the created world, nothing in the created world is the way it is, was originally created to be. In that sense, it's not good. It's filled with difficulties. The world is filled with sorrows and upheavals and sadness. As verse 21 says, it's in the bondage of corruption. It's enslaved to a process of decay. Plants, animals die. Topsoil erodes. Coastal regions erode. Tornadoes come. In a few weeks, we will enter into yet another hurricane season. And it's estimated that there will be 17, 17 named storms this year for us. They come. Tsunamis happen. Earthquakes happen. Bacteria kills. Viruses kill. The most impressive structures that mankind can create crumble and eventually fall down. No wonder the hymn writer encourages us to sing change and decay all around I see. Because it's true. Well, why is this? If the world was originally created to be good, why is it now enslaved to corruption? Well, Paul says it was subjected to futility. Do you see that in verse 20? Subjected to vanity, to emptiness. And he says this was acted upon it. It was subjected. It didn't happen of its own volition as if nature, again, were a person. And in that way of talking, Paul said, creation didn't choose this. Nature didn't choose to be subjected to, to futility, but rather it was subjected. Well, by whom? By whom? By him who subjected it, Paul says. By God. God did it. Paul here is thinking about Genesis chapter 3. This is a reference to what happened after Adam and Eve sinned in this good world that God created and placed them in. After they sinned, God pronounced a curse. A curse upon the serpent, a curse upon mankind, and a curse upon creation. Listen to Genesis three seventeen and 18. God said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
This is why I often say that the world is not the way it was designed to be. Not the way that it ought to be. When I say that, I'm not forgetting the sovereign authority of God who is ruling and overruling in every aspect of life. Rather, what I'm merely trying to do is to remember and emphasize Genesis 1 and 2. God created the world and everything in the world good. Then as a result of sin, rebellion against him, God subjected the created order to futility so that nature itself has become enslaved to corruption. The world is the way that it is because of mankind's rebellion against our creator. That's why there's sorrow. That's why there's decay. That's why there's sickness. That's why there's destruction and suffering and death in the world. God created it good. But Adam's fall spoiled it all. So what's the present situation of creation? Well, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Not the way it was originally designed. But Paul goes on to tell us that it's not the way that one day it's going to be. Did you notice the, the hint, the tone of hope that is interwoven with Paul's description of the way the world is now? It's experiencing futility and corruption, but it's not devoid of hope. Look at verse 19. He describes creation as waiting with eager longing for something. And then at the end of verse 20 and into 21, he says, God subjected it to futility in hope that creation itself will be set free from the bondage, its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom. So what is this future hope of creation? Verse 19 says, it is a longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 21 says, it is hoping to obtain the freedom of the children of God. Now those two phrases refer to the same thing. Sons in verse 19 emphasizes the status of all of God's children in verse 21. This refers to the end of history when Christ himself will return and make everything new. Then all Christians will be completely free from sin and will experience this undeniable splendor of what it means to be a child of God. It will be evident to everyone and everything. What this means, brothers and sisters, is that the culmination of our salvation, its final completion when Jesus returns and brings history to an end, will include the renewal of the created order itself. This is precisely what Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, when he's instructing his disciples about what's going to come. He says there, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, what the... ESV translates as New World. The New American Standard, more accurately, I think, or helpfully, translates as regeneration. And it's a word that Jesus uses here that's a compound word that just quite literally means new beginning. New beginning. 
Jesus is saying, in the future, there's going to be a new beginning. He's referring to what the Bible elsewhere calls the new heavens and the new earth that we heard read about in Isaiah 65 and that Peter himself writes about in 2 Peter 3.13 when he says, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In other words, we're waiting for God to keep his promise to recreate this world to its original, completely righteous condition. It will be this world without sin. It will be this earth, this heaven, completely renewed. This is what Jesus anticipates. This is what he says he's doing in Revelation 21.5 when he says, Behold, I make all things new. Paul says, creation itself is living with this anticipation. Nature has this expectation. Creation is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way that it's going to be. And as such, it is living right now with a deep longing for what's coming. There are two ways that Paul expresses this longing. In verse 19, he puts it like this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The language he uses, it's picturesque. It it describes a a person who's craning his neck, trying to look above the crowd to see if he can catch a glimpse of someone important. I love the way that J.B. Phillips translates verse 19. He renders it like this. The whole creation is on tiptoe. To see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. So there's this longing. There's this determination to see what has been promised. In verse 22, Paul puts it like this. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So he employs a metaphor. He compares what creation is doing now anticipating the future to a woman who is in the throes of labor pains. I've had the privilege of being by my wife's side for the birth of all six of our children. And I can tell you in that delivery room, there's a lot of groaning. There's a lot of pain. There's lots of difficulty. If you've ever experienced that or had the opportunity to watch that, You know that there are times when it gets harrowing and you wonder how it's ever going to be resolved and and you pray and, and you feel desperate at points. Why would Paul employ this metaphor to talk about the way creation is right now? He's making a point. His point is that the fallenness of this world with all of its consequent sufferings and sorrows is both temporary and it's anticipatory the suffering will not last it will give way to something new something amazing something right the groans that accompany a woman in labor as she anticipates the birth of her child can be heart-wrenching 
But just ask a new mother who is freshly holding her newborn babe if it was worth it. And she will acknowledge, of course, it's worth it. All of the sorrow, all of the difficulties don't even compare with the joy, the glory of this new life. That's Paul's point. That's what Paul wants us to see. Earthquakes, cancer, hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, droughts. These are groanings of nature, but they are the groanings of not death pangs, but birth pangs. They anticipate the new heavens and the new earth when there will be no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more tears. Creation itself groans for, longs for the renewal of all things. Well, Paul goes on to say in verses 23 and 25 that nature is not the only thing that groans. Christians groan. The church groans. We groan for the completion of our salvation. Paul says in verse 23, not not only creation, but we ourselves groan. He's talking about believers, those who have been justified by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, whose record has been wiped clean by the righteousness of Jesus, whose sins have been forever removed from them by the death of Jesus. He's talking about people like you and me who name the name of Christ, who are his disciples. He says, we groan. That is, we grieve. We sorrow. We have sadness. And we have reason to do so. It's because we're living in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. And we ourselves are not the way that we're supposed to be. In verse 17, Paul has already introduced this topic of suffering when he says that since we are the children of God, then we're also heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And then he adds, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. To be a child of God, to be a Christian is to be an actual part of the family of God. It's to be an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That is, all the promises, everything that God says he's going to do for his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, we who are in Christ, we get to share in those blessings with him. But it also means that as his disciples, we follow him. And we follow him on the very pathway that he himself first blazed, which is a pathway of suffering. So just as he suffered in this life, so we also will suffer. Our sufferings don't earn us salvation. Christ has earned our salvation. But our sufferings are the pathway we walk in our salvation. We walk this pathway waiting for our inheritance. Our Lord and Savior was crucified. And brothers and sisters, as we think about our lives as Christians, being conformed into his image, following after him, we should not be surprised when the life of discipleship includes difficulty, includes sorrow, includes suffering. Our present sufferings, however, cannot begin to compare with the glory that awaits us in the future. 
Nevertheless, in this life, we groan. Paul says, we groan inwardly. Why? Because the world's not the way that it should be. And we are not the way we should be. Note the way that Paul describes Christians who groan in this life. In verse 23, he says, we're people of the Spirit. He says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's the first part of the harvest that would be taken in and those Jewish farmers would then go and offer it up as a testimony to the acknowledgement that the whole thing belongs to God and that they expect his kindness in supplying the rest. But this word was also used to describe the birth certificate that would be given to someone born as a free man in a free family. And Paul here says that we have the spirit The Spirit belongs to us because as we've trusted Christ, He enters our life. The Spirit indwells us. He comes and takes up residence within us. He's made the point throughout this eighth chapter. In fact, He's made it so graphically that in verse 9, He says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't have Christ. You don't belong to Christ. So every Christian has the Spirit. And we have the Spirit in one sense as a down payment of more to come. In another sense, we have the Spirit as a testimony, a certification that we are indeed God's very children. Brothers and sisters, sometimes sufferings and sorrows come in this world to us in a way that can tempt us to wonder if indeed we are God's children. Lord, why this? Do you really love me? Have I just been kidding myself that you have accepted me, that you are for me? But it is the presence of God's Spirit in us with his convicting ministry, with his strengthening ministry that enables us to keep trusting Jesus. And no matter how many doubts and fears plague our minds, we still continue to cry out. We still continue to look to God. We still continue to rest on Christ. That is a testimony. That is a pledge. That is a harbinger of more to come. We are people who have the Spirit. We're also people of hope and patience. Look at verse 23, it says, we wait eagerly. We're waiting for the adoption as sons. That is, for the full revelation of our sonship. So that we and everyone else will see completely, undeniably, that yes, God has welcomed us into his very family. He qualifies it again for the redemption of our bodies. Redemption, to buy something back, like what happened with slaves who either themselves or others could provide enough resources to buy their freedom or when armies would go into battle and there would be prisoners taken by the other forces, the prisoners of war could be purchased back for the right price. They could be redeemed. Paul says, we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies. He mentions this to underscore that our salvation is not ethereal. It's not merely spiritual. God saves us body and soul. And one day our bodies will be fully renewed 
just like the rest of creation. Isn't that a glorious thought? Our bodies break down. There's some of you here right now in pain. Some of you have lived with pain for years and the prospect is that you will die with your pains. But the day is coming. The day is coming when your body will be completely made new. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he describes the resurrection of the dead at Jesus' return. He says, then our corruptible bodies will be raised incorruptible. They'll be raised in power with what he says, a spiritual body, what we might call renewed bodies. In Philippians chapter 3, he describes it in these terms. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We're waiting for that. It's going to happen. The day is on God's calendar already in the future. So we're waiting for the adoption of sons, for the redemption of our bodies. And verse 25 says, and we do so with patience. We wait for it, for what we do not see. With patience, Paul says. That is, with the capacity to bear up, with endurance, with fortitude, with resolve. Christians are people of steadfast endurance because we are trusting in the Lord who himself endured everything necessary for the sake of fulfilling God's purpose in our salvation. We endure because we're not left to our own, but we're inhabited by God's generous spirit who works within us. And so we wait with patience. But this waiting isn't passive. It doesn't suggest just marking time until we're rescued. On the contrary, our waiting as Christians is characterized by hope. Hope. Biblical hope. We hope confidently. In verse 24 it says, For in this hope we were saved. It's an interesting way that Paul has phrased this here. We were saved. He speaks in a tense that suggests, yes, it's happened. We were saved. When Jesus died on the cross, after he'd lived a life of complete obedience to God's commandments, and he said, it is finished, our salvation was completed. And we can say today in Christ, we were saved on the cross. When you turn from your sin, brother and sister, and you initially entrusted yourself to Christ as Lord, it's appropriate for you to look back and say, yes, we were saved. I was saved back then. But our salvation includes more than we've already experienced. It includes a future dimension, a future completion, future glorification. When we, together with the whole world, will be made completely new. We don't see it yet. We haven't fully experienced all that's in store, but it's coming and it is ours. And thus we live in this hope. Hope, as Paul uses it here, as it's found throughout the scripture, 
is not wishful thinking, but it is certain anticipation. It is the confidence that comes of knowing what will happen in the future that is grounded upon the promises that God has given to us. Promises that his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, shed his blood in order to guarantee. Brothers and sisters, we have been given a foretaste of all that God has in store for us. And as amazing as it is to be born again now, to have sins forgiven now, to be united with Christ now, to be indwelt by his spirit now, the best is yet to come. Do you see that? Do you long for that? Is there something in you that, that desires to fully experience what the Bible sets before us as it describes what awaits us? Knowing Christ, having His Spirit, these are incomparable blessings. But we want more. We were made for more. We've already experienced salvation that God has for us but we haven't experienced it in all of its fullness that awaits us but we will brothers and sisters the day's coming when our groaning will give way to glory our patient hopeful longing will be fulfilled forever I, I know that in this congregation this morning there are those who are not Christians and we want you to know we're glad you're here. We hope you'll continue to come. But I want to just ask you to think for a few minutes about what Paul is saying in this passage. Do you see it? Do you recognize what he is describing about what's coming in the future? Have you ever wondered yourself why you are here? I mean, why are you in this world? Why now? Why in this place rather than somewhere else at a different time? Have you ever found yourself frustrated by the world? Wishing things were different? Wishing you could make things different? Have you ever sensed within yourself frustration? Wishing that you were different? If you think rightly about it, you'll realize that all of those intuitions... They're all signposts to the truthfulness of what Paul is talking about in this passage. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis laments the fact that we have not been taught to desire what the Bible describes as the new heavens and the new earth. He writes, Our whole education tends to fix our minds on this world. When the real want for heaven is present in us, we do not recognize it. Most people if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You know that's true. You know it's true. You may not want to face it, and you may have a hard time articulating it. But when you're alone at night, 
You can't sleep. You're thinking about yourself. You're thinking about the world. And there's something in you that can't find satisfaction. The reason is, you're not the way you're supposed to be. And you were made for the world that is to come. And the doorway into that world is Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Trust the Lord Jesus. And be reunited to your creator. And begin to experience everything that God has prepared for those whom he saves by his grace. As they trust in his son. As you do that, he will fit you from now to eternity to experience future glory. Brothers and sisters, in this life we groan. We have many reasons to groan. The world's not the way it's supposed to be. You and I are not the way we were designed to be. Yet in Jesus Christ, we really do have everything that we need for this life and the life to come. Because we have Christ, on our worst day, we have more to rejoice about than the wealthiest, most successful person does on their best day. And because we live in a world that is still broken by sin, and sin remains in us, on our best day, we have reason to be full of sorrow and weeping. But the day is coming. After all of our battles are over, after the final battle has been won, when because of Christ, we too will be finally and completely saved. And just like Samwise Gamgee, we also will awaken to a new world where everything sad will be untrue forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the promises we have in him. Thank you for giving us your word to teach us truth so that we can live properly in this world knowing that there's yet a day coming when new heavens and new earth will be our eternal inheritance. Help us to live for that day. Work in the hearts and minds of those who have no prospect of that before them today because they have not yet turned the knee to bow before Christ. Show them Christ today. Save them today. For the glory of your Son, we ask you to do this. And we pray in his name. Amen.